This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Hi, everyone. David here again with another episode of Condopedia. For episode three, we are providing another recording of a Q and A session we had on March twenty seventh, discussing COVID nineteen issues at condominiums. In this Q and A session, we divided up the questions in several distinct categories. We talked about financial issues, we talked about status certificate issues, delivery issues, quarantine and self isolation issues at condominiums. Whether or not condominiums should provide for volunteering initiatives, reporting and communicating issues to owners, maintenance and repair during this time, and concerns about allowing guests into the building. There is also a Q and A session that happened at the end of the webinar, and the show notes will contain all of the timestamps for each section, as well as the timestamps for the specific questions that were received. As always, stay safe, and we'll be in touch again soon. So I think what we'll do is we'll get ourselves started. So um, on the top left-hand side of everybody's screen, you probably see Allison Browning. Allison is our HR, uh, our sorry, our office manager, and she takes care of all of us at uh, DHA. And she's our moderator slash host today to make sure that there's any technological issues. She's going to do our best to take care of it. Uh, then you'll see the rest of our team, and I'll introduce everybody in just a quick moment. We have some specific questions that we're going to deal with today. We asked for questions in advance, and we got some real doozies. So I'll try not to take up too much time on our intro here because I think we have eight really great questions. And I'll just quickly go through uh, the participants from our team today. We've got myself, of course, Nancy Houle. Hello. Uh, we've got Christy Allen. Christy, hello. And everybody's muted except for me, so I have exclusive power over speech right now. It's fantastic. It's the only time in my life I might have this, so I'm going to take full advantage. Um, we've got Melinda. We've got Mohimanal, Mo. We've got David, Emily, Victoria, Jim, and Cheryl. And each of them are going to tackle some of our key issues that uh, we've been asked about. Um, and we've tried to take all the questions that we received and answer every single one of the questions and group them by topics. Before we get to the specific topics, though, I'm going to ask Ali to unmute Jim because he's the first one who gets the floor. And Jim is going to start off with uh, some introductory remarks and some general principles on the key things he thinks that we need to be thinking about in this ever-changing, crazy condo industry right now. Uh, so, Jim, over to you. Thanks, Nance, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Just delighted uh, to be connecting with everyone in this unusual way, for me anyway. Um, I'm going to start off with some emotional comments, and then I'm going to turn to some uh, more general legal principles that I wanted to talk about. So starting off with my emotional comments, I, I think these are exceptionally important exceptionally scary, critical times for condominium boards and managers. You are at the very heart of this health crisis. More and more, I think you're going to see health officials specifically reaching out to you. Millions of residents are living in condominiums in Ontario and worldwide. They are often living at close, close quarters. They are sharing space, specifically common elements. Condominiums are focal points for interaction between persons 
and for the transmission of the virus. So in my view, condominium corporations and managers have a vital role to play in this crisis. And to me, it's a vital, vibrant time to be a condominium manager. And I'm sure you guys are all feeling that and probably feeling a lot of pressure surrounding it too. But I implore you to see the fantastic and vital role for our society that you guys are playing now in this crisis. So now, my general legal comments. Condominium corporations are mandated to control, manage, and administer the common elements. We know this from Section 17 Sub 2 of our Condominium Act. Condominium corporations are also the occupiers of the common elements for purposes of occupiers' liability. We know this from Section 26 of the Act. In my view, each board should carefully consider the COVID-19 issues of the particular condominium and then decide how safety is to be reasonably maintained in relation to activities on the condominium's common elements. I'm not saying that a condominium corporation has to do things in a particular way. That's one of my main messages is that the way you do things will be up to each board to a, in many respects. I know there, you're gonna have guidance from different officials that you'll have to follow, but you'll have a lot of your own decisions to make. Each board will need to decide what procedures make sense, sense for safety on their common elements. In my view, the key is that each board needs to be thinking about these issues, giving these issues careful reasoned consideration, and deciding what role the corporation and the corporation staff will play in relation to the activities on the common elements of the particular condominium, including what board will allow others to do on the common elements. So I would summarize my overall comments on this as follows. I think it's up to each board to meet and discuss the COVID-19 issues in their condominium and then decide based on safety considerations how things are going to happen on their common elements during this crisis. This is what I would offer as a step-by-step -step guide to condo boards. First and foremost, remember that you are mandated to control, manage, and administer the common elements of your condominium. I'm saying these are the roles of boards, but you guys as managers, of course, are critically interested in this. The boards are responsible to decide how to keep the common elements reasonably safe. Put another way, you are mandated to decide how things will happen on the common elements in order to reasonably maintain safety in your community. As a first step, I suggest schedule a board meeting to discuss the COVID-19 issues in your condominium. Right now, of course, this board meeting would probably be an electronic meeting. At the meeting, start by making a list of the COVID-19 issues in your condominium. And of course, they'll be drastically different for a high rise or an apartment style condominium as compared to a townhome condominium. And my one of my main messages is that each condominium is gonna be unique in terms of their COVID-19 issues to some extent. I, uh, then I would say for each issue, consider how does this issue affect safety on the common elements? Who is at risk? What options are available to address the, is, uh, the issue? 
And of course, we know there's a whole myriad of options to consider, and we'll talk about them today. Others will in more detail. You guys know what these issues are, but let me just run through them quickly. Uh, developing new protocols or restrictions in relation to movement of people and things on the common elements. Um, many condominiums, of course, are thinking about that as an option, a consideration in their condominium. Developing new protocols or restrictions in relation to deliveries to and from the units, parcels and packages movements. Having the corporation staff play a revised role in relation to deliveries or in relation to helping persons who are quarantined or have tested positive. And at the same time, you need to consider the steps to be taken to keep the staff reasonably safe as they fulfill their functions. Education is a big one. Posting notices about the new protocols for the benefit of anyone on the common elements and providing separate notices to owners and residents about the new protocols. And one of the things I was gonna say is, to me, this is important because the level of understanding and appreciation and acceptance of the seriousness of this crisis is variable. Some people aren't concerned and don't really follow what the key issues are. Some people in the, in the community, others are much more keenly aware. And so economy and corporations can play a role in trying to make them more aware. Um, Making changes to the cleaning of the common elements, including changes to the frequency of cleaning, the methods used and the products used. Maybe forming a task force or committee to help residents with all of the new protocols. Maybe forming a task force or committee to connect with people who are feeling disconnected or feel fearful or otherwise uncomfortable during the risks. If there is to be such a task force or committee, Consider the steps to be taken to try to help enhance safety around the activities of that committee, both for the committee members and for others who uh, interact with the committee. Alternatively, perhaps leave some issues in the hands of volunteers who are acting independently from the board, bearing in mind that the condominium corporation may nevertheless be responsible for what those volunteers do or don't do on the common elements etc etc the options are really endless note that guidance from the local health department can be extremely helpful in terms of recommended options and protocols so keep checking what the local health department has to say we will be checking it and we'll be blogging about it as we go too i would say in each case ask yourself as board members what do we feel is the most reasonable option by which to maximize safety and minimize risk for our residents staff and others on the property. Choose your options, then implement your chosen options. And again, this can vary in my view from board to board and from community to community. Different things will make sense in di for different boards. When desired in your case, seek assistance um, from an expert and thereby trigger the protection of section 37 sub three of the condo act. Most importantly, in my view, be sure not to leave these decisions in the hands of others. I'll say again, I think condominium corporations and boards, managers are in control of the common elements. You may, of course, decide that it's best to leave some activities in the hands of others, including like volunteers. But you should be making reasoned decisions to allow this based on uh, considerations of safety. 
these are the things that I think uh, you need to be thinking about in your role, uh, this critical, vital role right now. Um, uh, fi finally, I'm going to repeat, the corporation is in control of the common elements, particularly when it comes to maintaining safety. So it's up to the board to consider and decide, in my view, based on safety considerations, how things will proceed on the common elements on a case-by-case -case basis. And uh, I don't think there's a particular game plan. Uh, there's a lot of maybe overlapping game plans that we'll see from a lot of different condominiums, but there's no one size fits all in my view. It's a, it's a board matter for board consideration, working with their, um, with their manager to help them uh, find the way through this in the safest way possible. So there, those are our sort of motherhood comments that I wanted to make. And again, uh, Nance, uh, the details uh, others are going to get into, and I'm happy to chime in if, if it could ever help. Great. Thanks, Jim. Uh, so everybody heard Jim mention all of the key topics that everybody is struggling with. Uh, quarantine, volunteers, uh, finances, all those key issues. So Jim gave us an overview of a general approach that we all need to be take, which is uh, making sure we focus on it, we think on it, and we come up with a plan that suits our condominium. So now we're going to go topic by topic through each of the various things that Jim touched on. The first one is going to be financial. And we had some specific questions come in on our financial side, and I'll get Ali to unmute Cheryl as I introduce her questions. Uh, so Cheryl, there were two questions that you were asked on the financial side. I just need you to unmute yourself. You're still muted. Okay, let's get you on mute. There you are. So I'll ask the first question. What should the board do if owners ask for condo slash parking fee deferments? Yeah, so if the if an owner asks the board about this, the board's going to need to consider whether it's feasible for the corporation um, financially. The board will need to look at its current budget and see whether it has the capacity to offer a one-month fee holiday or a two-month fee holiday, whether they can revise the budget to lower the monthly expenses for a short period of time, um, or enter into payment plans with owners to allow reduced payments over a period of time. Um, if the corporation doesn't have the funds to offer a holiday or a re revise the budget, case-by-case um, -case payment plans may be a good option in that corporation. However, the board needs to um, treat all owners equally. So if there's a situation where one owner comes forward and the board could maybe do it with one owner but not multiple owners, then it may not make sense because they have to anticipate that they will receive more than one inquiry. Um, and if, there, if payment plans are an option for the corporation, uh, the payment plans would need to be in writing with specific provisions to address the corporation's lien rights. And they'll also need to ensure that interest is collected in order to be fair to other owners that have made their payments on time. So it's just a matter of the board um, discussing their current financial situation and seeing if it's feasible. If there's a surplus in the corporation's budget, then they may be able to offer a holiday at this time. So that's going to be a board by board decision just on their current finances. Great. Okay. Thanks, Cheryl. The next question you had uh, relates to the fact that we're a little bit all over the place right now with what projects the corporation may or may not be able to complete in a given year. 
Um, certain projects have had to stop work as a result of public health considerations or because they were supposed to be scheduled for the summer or start soon and they can't start. So the question is, are condo owners who were recently special assessed for upcoming projects that are now on hold still required to follow the payment schedule even though the work can be months ahead or worst case scenario next year? The corporation is not in a position to offer a, a payment holiday, but is there any way that they could revise the special assessment scheduling? So yeah, there's definitely going to be changes in the corporation's budgets um, as a result of the situation. In some cases, as pointed out, there will be work that's canceled and rescheduled. So this could change a corporation's funding requirements for the work uh, in my view, the corporation can certainly consider revising the payment provisions of a special assessment, especially if the work is not uh, required or work isn't proceeding at this time or the funds aren't required. Um, the board could delay future payments and then set a new schedule for payments um, that for when they need to be made. Um, this may also be necessary if the costs involved in the work change due to the delay. Um, if the corporation is going and uh, changing its budget, it will need to work with management and its experts in revising the budget or contributions to the reserve fund to ensure that any changes made won't affect its ability to meet its annual reserve fund obligations. Um, and just a note with respect to reserve fund contribution, in our view, uh, reserve fund contributions can be viewed as annual contributions. So the corporation may be in a position to delay making its contribution to the reserve fund by a couple of months, as long as it meets those obligations by year end. If the corporation is going to consider this approach, we suggest working with your reserve fund planner or engineer to make sure that there are no unintended negative consequences of this action. Um, and a further note on that, if the corporation's finances are in a position that any delay or change in payments will knock the reserve fund off track, this will need to be mentioned in the status certificates. Great, and Cheryl, on status certificates, is there anything else we need to be thinking about for those? Yes, so um, there's been a question about whether uh, there should be a blanket statement in the status certificates about um, unknown, the unknown financial burden that some corporations may face. Um, right now, at this time, I think it's hard to tell whether uh, it, I don't think that every condominium corporation at the, this time is going to necessarily be facing a deficit because of this. So it's possible that some corporations will see their um, expenses increase because of the additional cleaning, uh, increased management, um, and other fees that they're incurring at this time. But other condos might um, experience a surplus because work's not proceeding. Um, they're shutting down parts of the common elements or canceling meetings at this time. So they're not incurring the same kind of costs at this time that they might have otherwise been. Um, so it'll be up to each board to look at their situation and their finances to see if they anticipate an increase. Um, in the cases where there is an increase that's uh, a real risk to the corporation, then this needs to be mentioned in the status certificates under paragraph 12. Um, and this needs to be mentioned as soon as these risks are apparent. So condo boards should, as Jim said, be sitting down to discuss the COVID-19 situation and the impacts and look at this and whether this is a possibility. 
Um, if there is a situation where a condominium corporation um, does expect and um, excess expenses, um, we did provide in our blog that went out this morning um, some suggestive wording that could be added in paragraph 12. Great. And, and just as noted above, so if there's any chance that the reserve funds off track, that needs to be mentioned as well. Great. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, and of course, if the boards are sitting down, they're sitting down in their own homes and connecting virtually, as Jim said at the very beginning of our <laughs> show. So just a reminder that uh, we don't want to be sitting in the same room together. Uh, even over here in Quebec, we're not allowed to have more, more than two people getting together. So we have to be careful there. Uh, I just want to note, we do have a question from a listener uh, on the side about real estate showings and guests. Uh, David's going to deal with that later on. So stay tuned on that particular question. Uh, I think it's one of the last questions we do. With, oh, maybe it's Mo on guests, actually. I think it's Mo on guests. So stay tuned for Mo talking about guests. We're going to turn now to deliveries uh, generally, and we'll just uh, unmute Victoria. Victoria is going to be providing comments on that. Uh, and I'll just read the question and summarize the question to the best of our ability. Uh, it's a particular question, but Victoria is also going to speak about deliveries general because we've been hearing all sorts of different ideas in the communities, and I think it's great to share these ideas and give some thoughts on those. The question is, we sent a notice out asking residents of condo XXX to meet all delivery personnel in the foyer instead of buzzing them up to their unit. However, the board has changed their mind and they now want to send out an updated notice advising residents that the intercom is going to be disabled. So when the delivery person calls them, they cannot buzz up, buzz up. they have to meet them in the foyer or lobby. Is this even allowed legally? We do have a key box for the fire department and the ambulance service. And we're also checking to see if we might be able to have the residents that are self-isolating be able to buzz them up on their own, just those people. But I don't know if the board is overstepping their authority by wanting to do this for the majority of residents. I think it's a great question because we had some, uh, some concern about that as well. So Victoria, over to you. Uh, so we don't recommend disabling the intercom. Uh, the intercom, especially at this time, is needed to allow access to others into the condominium building, namely for uh, emergencies and or emergency personnel and for people uh, who need others to bring food and supplies. Um, however, in terms of how deliveries come into the building, the, the board certainly has the mandate to control this. Uh, and each board will ultimately ultimately need to determine what makes most sense for that specific condominium community. Um, unfortunately, there is no right answer at this time, but uh, the various options that we've seen include uh, having all packages delivered to concierge and then having concierge uh, or the superintendent bring them up to each unit. Um, in other condos, we've seen uh, volunteer groups being formed, uh, which aren't necessarily organized by the board, I'll note, uh, to pick up the packages uh, and deliver them to each unit. Uh, the rationale for these options is that only those living within the building are traveling through the building. Uh, and so there are no outsiders uh, namely being the couriers coming into the building. Um, other options that we've seen are having the courier uh, and or the delivery individual uh, deliver the package uh, to each unit. And then lastly, having each occupant responsible for their own deliveries. Um, the difficulty is obviously trying to limit the number of outsiders coming into the building and also at the same time, trying to limit the amount of traffic on the common elements uh, as much as possible. Um, this is obviously very tricky, um, but again, the board will ultimately need to consider what works best for the condominium community 
based on uh, what Jim uh, said earl earlier, uh, reason, or reason safety considerations. Um, while deliveries can't be fully stopped right now, um, as they're still considered essential, it might be helpful for the board to send uh, a notice to owners to request that non-essential deliveries not be made to the building at this time in light of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, as a final note, uh, whichever approach the board ultimately takes, um, it should of course take steps to ensure that those that are coming onto the common elements uh, and delivering uh, packages to the units are following the practices uh, set forth by the public health in terms of social distancing, sanitizing, et cetera. Great, okay, thanks, Victoria. Uh, lots of deliveries going on and I know that superintendents slash concierge in some cases are being overwhelmed. So to, to the extent that you can come up with a policy or a protocol for your building, it's gonna help everybody, uh, residents, uh, delivery personnel and your staff. So I think we're gonna turn now, we're half, almost halfway through the hour. So let's tackle one of the trickiest questions and then we'll tackle the next trickiest question. The first tricky question I think is quarantining and self-isolation, particularly in light of the recent um, um, statements that we now are under the, the, the quarantine or invoking of the quarantine act. Um, Christy's gonna tackle the questions. I don't know if it makes sense, Christy, for me to read the exact questions or if you just want to uh, provide your comments because there's five questions there. What would you prefer? Yeah, I think it's probably better if I just provide my comments mm -hmm. um, because I think uh, the, I'll end up repeating myself if we go in, in the order of the questions. Um, anyway, so just to uh, recap what the Quarantine Act requires and the emergency order that's been made under the, the Quarantine Act, Self-isolation is now imposed and required uh, for a period of 14 days if a person is tested positive with COVID-19, if they're symptomatic yet have not been tested. So that's a lot of people are hearing um, if, if an individual has symptoms, they're being told treat it as though you have COVID-19. They're not receiving the test, but they're being told by health professionals to treat it as though they have uh, COVID-19. And so they're, they're required to self-isolate. Um, if they've been in contact with someone who has tested positive and or if they've returned from traveling, uh, all of these individuals are currently required to self-isolate for a period of 14 days. Um, what does self-isolation mean in the context of condominium living? So this is one of the main questions that people have. In our, our view, we, we talked about this and uh, debated it quite a bit, but our conclusion is that self-isolation in the condominium setting means that you've got to stay in your unit. You can't go out and about on the common elements. And the reason is because if people were permitted to um, essentially walk around on the common elements, it would defeat the purpose of the self-isolation order, which is to keep those individuals who either have COVID-19 or are at risk of having COVID-19, uh, the purpose is to keep them away from the general population and from transmitting that to others. And so that would be defeated if people were permitted to roam around on the common elements and otherwise use the common elements. Um, so in our view, self-isolation requires that these owners and residents stay uh, within the confines of their units. Um, that said, that obviously presents a very unique uh, and difficult um, situation for boards that are left with the question of how do we enforce that? What is it that we're supposed to be doing, dealing with these individuals who are supposed to be self-isolating but maybe are not? Um, and so as a, as a sort of foundational concept, in our view, the board and condominium corporations more generally do have a role to play with respect to individuals that are required to self-isolate. So there is a role to play there. Um, that said, we don't feel that it goes so far as imposing an obligation on boards or managers 
um, to police individuals who are supposed to be self-isolating. So the, the job of the board and the, the, the condominium corporation is not to um, enforce the Quarantine Act, so to speak. Uh, that is for uh, public authorities, that's their role. Um, however, the purpose of the condominium, uh, one of the, the roles of the condominium corporation and the board is to ensure the safety and security of the property for all of the residents and all of the people who come on the property. And so it's, it's with that particular function in mind um, that we say that in our view, the board does have a role to play when dealing with uh, individuals who are supposed to be in self-isolation. Um, the question obviously is, okay, well, what do we do? What is it that we're supposed to do when we find that people who we know are supposed to be self-isolating or not? Um, or what is our, what, what obligations do we have to find out who um, is supposed to be self-isolating? Like so many of these topics, and Jim really hit it on the head when he started um, the webinar today, uh, uh, but like so many of these topics, it's really circumstance-driven. And I don't know that there's necessarily a right or wrong answer in terms of what to do or how to enforce. It's, it's really going to come down to um, uh, having information and, and assessing that information. So having a discussion about that information, the risks that that information um, presents for the condominium corporation and what, what we as a board or property manager should be doing uh, to address those particular risks. So there's a number of things that we came up with that um, you might be able to utilize in any given situation, again, depending on, on what steps your board wants to take, but also what information is available to the board at the time that it's making its decision. First and foremost, um, the board can consider and, and property managers can consider educating owners. So if you become aware of a situation where uh, you know, there's often there's rumors about an individual who's supposed to be in self-isolation, but who is maybe not self-isolating properly. Um, you don't necessarily know with certainty that they're supposed to be self-isolating. It's just rumor. That's a situation where you may want to just employ education. So writing to these individuals to remind them that if they are required to self-isolate, that what, what that entails and that as far as a condominium corporation, Goes, that means they have to stay within their unit. They're not allowed on the common elements. It may just be a situation where they don't quite understand that. So, so straightforward education may go a long way in these situations. Um, the, you can also consider involving legal counsel. Um, and so certainly a letter from legal counsel, uh, again, with, with primarily a view to educate the individual on their obligations and per, perhaps with a little more um, uh, uh, force than would otherwise come from just a board but uh, or, or property manager but um, same goal is really just to educate and advise those owners that what, what it means to self-isolate within a condominium corporation and advise them of what their obligations are if they are required to self-isolate under the quarantine act and as part of those communications you know there, there might be a natural escalation again depending on the situation because you might come across a situation that is truly an emergency and then you have to deal with that differently but if it's a matter of just gathering information and trying to inform individuals of what their obligations are you might um, slowly escalate those communications and advise the individual that uh, if further action is required they're going to be paying legal fees or that uh, they could be facing a court application or that the board and or manager might be required to contact police and or public health, um, public health officials to help them address the situation. Um, the natural escalation with legal counsel would be for us to bring an application. Um, that said, you've probably all heard that uh, 
the court is not currently hearing anything except uh, matters that are considered to be an emergency. So it would have to be an emergency situation. Uh, there probably are situations that could occur where an individual who really should not be in contact with others, uh, where there's an emergency situation like that, that that sort of dictates court application is, is necessary. That said, I can't help but feel that if it's an emergency situation, a true emergency situation that would um, permit us to go to court on an emergency application, then that might be better dealt with by the police. So if that's the kind of situation that you're dealing with, a true emergency situation, um, you might contact the police. You might also contact the police even if it's not an emergency. So it may just be that you feel, um, you know, education, communication, uh, reasonable communication is not working. And the only thing that you can do is contact the police to escalate the matter and deal with the matter, um, uh, take it to sort of the next level. Um, we were talking about this earlier today in preparation for our webinar. And uh, I was mentioning that I, I, had, um, I was listening to CBC Radio this morning and listening to um, an interview with an individual who's uh, with the police department who's sort of heading up the uh, task force that's going to be responsible for enforcing the Quarantine Act here in Ottawa. And uh, based on that interview, it sounds like the police at this stage are really taking the education first approach rather than punitive action. So where they um, are informed about individuals who are not uh, complying with the obligations of the Quarantine Act and the emergency orders that have been made under that act, um, what they're doing is trying to educate individuals. They don't see a benefit in taking punitive action at this time for a whole bunch of reasons, um, including the stress on the judicial and uh, criminal uh, system that, that that could potentially take. So that's where they're going with it. That said, if need be, they'll intervene um, more directly with individuals that require um, intervention. Uh, one of the concerns that was discussed on the during this interview, and I thought to myself, this is something that our condominiums are definitely going to be struggling with, is um, cases involving mental health concerns. So where there's a mental health concern compounded by concerns uh, with self-isolation, I mean, certainly the two could also go hand in hand. Um, uh, those are situations that are probably going to be more tricky to deal with. And straightforward education or communication may not be as effective and then uh, further steps may uh, ultimately be required. Um, but I just want to reiterate the point that um, all of these options are reasonable options and I think what which one applies or which one is best uh, for a given situation is really going to depend on the circumstances. Uh, for example, if the board knows that somebody in the building is tested COVID-19 positive and you know who, you know of the individual, you know who it is, and you're aware that they're on the common elements. I know Nancy's dealing with the situation uh, where somebody is spitting off balconies. So, I mean, if you know that somebody is COVID-19 positive and is, is spitting off balconies, that's a real safety and security concern that um, might not be reasonably addressed by simple communication. And you might have to consider these other alternatives, including contacting the police or um, the public health officials who are also working hand in hand with the police to address, uh, address situations of breaches under the Quarantine Act and, and people who are just not complying with self-isolation. Right, that's a, a heavy topic, Christy, thank you. And I was looking at, we had some questions on exactly what you were just talking about uh, to the right here uh, in our chat line. I think you've addressed half of those questions and then the other half I think is gonna be for David. 
Um, at the end of our session, uh, hopefully we'll have a little bit of time if anybody has any other comments or helpful hints that we haven't thought of or suggestions or something we should be considering, more than happy to take those at the end of the, of the session. But so far, I think the key messages on quarantine and isolation are what Christy has said. Uh, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, it's really on a case-by-case -case basis. So David, we'll, we'll unmute you now. Uh, and David's question is all about volunteers. Uh, what can we do to help people on the con or, or in the condominium community? Um, again, David, it's a long question. It talks about uh, the obligations of volunteers or, or how do we help the volunteers? Instead of reading the question, is it best if I just say, David, tell us about volunteers? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think I just go ahead and start it. Um, I guess I can summarize. The, the question kind of is a two-parter. So the first question is talking about what uh, volunteers in general at the condominium corporation, um, whether it's allowed, what they can do. And the second part is um, whether if the volunteers are happening, whether to inform the condominiums insurer. Um, so this is definitely an issue that uh, we as a firm had a vigorous debate on. So it is okay for each board to struggle on this issue. And there's not gonna be a one size fits all approach. Now, obviously from a community standpoint, if people are volunteering to help other neighbors, it's definitely a positive development. But the question of whether or not to allow volunteers or whether the corporation is going to facilitate these initiatives should be decided by each board and it should be depending on their each uh, in individual circumstances. So you might have a situation where one board might decide that they will have, for example, a task force to facilitate the volunteers uh, but another board might not. Um, and these arrangements will also depend on what the volunteers are planning to do. Um, are the volunteers just gonna be picking up and dropping off groceries or is there gonna be something more intensive, um, for example, cleaning a unit? Um, but so what we can do is provide some general comments on either of this, those two options. Now there are several key points uh, to keep in mind for your boards and when they make this type of decision. Um, firstly, everyone is governed the same way on the common elements, pursuant to the corporation's government documents, and more importantly, in, in our current situation, the guidelines and the directions that are provided by the public health authorities. So right now, that means for common elements, ingress and egress for now, social distancing practices, etc. And the conduct on the common elements should be the corporation's main focus. Condominium corporations are not public health authorities. So be mindful that the corporations themselves are not instructing people on things like social distancing. Everybody, as I'm sure everyone knows, everyone needs to be following the public health authority guidelines. And if there are volunteers operating at your condominiums, make sure that this is emphasized to them. And this could mean even either directing them to the links on the websites or even perhaps providing copies of the guidelines as like a printout from the, like for example, from the Ottawa Public Health Authority. Now, if your board decides to take a more hands-off approach to volunteers, so meaning the volunteers are gonna organize themselves, you'll want to make sure that the, the volunteers are doing things in line with the guidelines to mitigate the risk particularly because in a more hands-off scenario, um, the board might not be keeping tabs on what uh, the volunteers are doing. 
But if your board is deciding to take on a more hands-on approach, creating a task force, facilitating the volunteer activities, and, and that might make sense for some boards uh, because they might want to take greater control of the volunteers' actions. Now, uh, if your board decides to take this route, you must be very careful that you're not directing the volunteers and that you are referring the volunteers to the guidelines from the public health authorities. This is like, if, if you're really directing the volunteers, it's even more important. And it might even make sense for boards of either taking the hands-on or hands-off approach uh, to basically consult with, uh, in our case, the Ottawa Public Health or your local public health authority and get their guidance uh, before any sort of volunteer work is conducted. It's the importance of getting educated and informed uh, rises if the volunteers decide to take on more significant tasks. So the amount of preparation, for example, for volunteers if they're just dropping up groceries or picking up deliveries, et cetera, will be obviously different than if they're entering to a unit and doing other stuff. Um, one other issue that comes into our minds when we're talking about these sort of things is what about personal protective equipment or uh, use of the common element bathrooms um, for the volunteers, I mean. And we are recommending that the corporations do not provide these supplies. Obviously for common element facilities, they're currently closed um, pursuant to recommendations from the health authorities. And the issue with providing personal protective equipment or hand sanitizer, for example, is these supplies are already in high demand and we the corporation might find themselves in a difficult situation if such supplies are basically depleted for the volunteers. And lastly, just to touch base on the insurance portion, um, only, you only need to inform the insurer if the board decides to appoint these volunteers as officers. So if the, if the volunteers are just conducting their business in accordance with the guidelines, there's, there's really no, no need to basically inform the insurer. And just to kind of close everything up, ultimately, again, there's no right or wrong approach when it comes to volunteers many things will be fact-driven and it will be very dependent on your board's individual circumstances and what your board's objectives are in trying to get through this crisis. And, and that's kind of it. So if there's any follow-ups, we'll, we can take those as well. Yeah, so I think we, we might have some questions on that a little bit later on when we summarize, because those are really challenging situations on a case-by-case -case basis. And some of the comments we give today by Monday, they may be history. We may have to change our approach depending on what happens over the weekend. We, we hope that uh, we maintain a plank over the weekend, but uh, we may have to change our minds as we go along. It's an ever-evolving situation. Um, and just, I think, for David's comment on the personal protective equipment, it doesn't mean that we don't provide the, the stuff that we're already providing on the general common elements for everybody. It's just uh, whether or not the corporation would be in a position to provide extra uh, material to just a volunteer group. I think uh, that's your point, eh, David? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so that's our, our volunteer question. And I think between Christy and, and David, we answered the, the question in the chat session, hopefully. Next, we're going to turn over to Emily. So we'll mute David, we'll unmute Emily. And we're going to turn over to Emily to talk to us about reporting and communicating. Jim gave us some 
general advice at the beginning and Emily has some more specific advice based on the questions. The questions that Emily received are specific to cases where there is a positive uh, COVID-19 uh, case in the building um, and what approach we might want to take with that. Right, so our thoughts on this are pretty straightforward and if you want more detail, we do have a blog on this on our website. Um, but essentially, the information can, of course, if you do receive information that a, an individual has tested positive in your condominium, this can be shared if that individual does uh, permit the condominium corporation to share that information. Of course, that doesn't mean that you can disclose names or unit numbers or any identifying information, but just to um, allow the others in the, in the building to know that there is a positive case. Um, but with respect to receiving this information, you can't we can't force people to provide this information, um, but you can certainly ask uh, and request that residents who do get tested positive uh, come forth and provide the board with that information. So, um, and the board should emphasize that the purpose of obtaining that information is to be able to help maintain the safety within the building and hopefully to help prevent the, to prevent or slow the transmission of the virus within the building and in the community at large. Um, whether that means implementing specific or more strict stricter protocols within the building. Uh, the key there is to appeal to individuals to come forward with that information for the benefit of the condominium community and the greater community um, as well. And I, I'll, I'll just mention, Jim already talked about this, but uh, it's generally a good idea to be posting notices and or protocols based on public health advisories. And uh, that would depend on what goes into those protocols and notices would depend um, on the specific case in a condominium building. So whatever the board decides makes particular sense for them. Just to re reiterate some examples, for example, uh, social distancing when using elevators, telling individuals to, to maybe have no more than two or three people in the elevators at once, um, social distancing while traveling on the common elements, frequent hand washing, avoid touching things in the common elements, um, signage to deter congregating in the common elements, things like that, whatever fits within your condominium community. And again, uh, in case we haven't mentioned it enough, the key here is to be educating residents. Uh, essentially, that's the best way to ensure that people understand the severity of the situation um, and to ensure that they take seriously the public health recommendations in terms of practices uh, that are essential to prevent or slow the spread of the of COVID-19. Uh, we just want to emphasize that the information is being used when you receive information from residents about um, testing positive, that it's being used to maintain safety in the building and to increase any uh, need as needed cleaning or sanitization and things uh, of that nature. Great, thanks Emily. Uh, and I guess we can just say we've, we've heard from some of the managers in town that uh, there are cases where condos have said only one uh, family or resident in the elevator at a time and we haven't seen any backlash on that. And I heard a really fun tip on a webinar not long ago um, that uh, some corporations are leaving uh, toothpicks and um, um, uh, Q-tips. So that, or, or sorry, not leaving, but suggesting you carry toothpicks and Q-tips to press the elevator buttons. Just, just a thought, just a thought. You never know what can be helpful. 
Uh, so next then we're going to turn to maintenance and repair and we'll, we'll unmute Melinda and Emily's already muted and Melinda has a specific question. It's a really interesting question and she's going to talk more generally about some maintenance and repair issues, but uh, I'll just read out her specific question first so people can ponder it while she's, while she's talking about her other things. Annual fire inspections inside the units. Can we legally or safely defer them? What do we do? Even the fire department doesn't know what to do right now. So Melinda, over to you. Great, thanks. I'm actually going to start with that one. Um, hopefully you can hear me okay. Is it, is it okay right now? Okay. I don't have my headphones in and there might be some traffic in the background, but I'll do my best here. So um, the answer on fire inspections and unit, and unit, unit to unit inspections is along the lines of what you've already heard today. It's going to depend on the circumstances. But in our view, our uh, general recommendation right now is that unit-to-unit -unit inspections are risky. And so if the um, inspections can reasonably be deferred at this time, then they should be deferred. So we want to try and avoid that type of high-risk activity as much as possible. Um, the big question is going to be how to assess whether it's reasonable to defer your inspection or not. And generally, I have two points on that. The first is um, that you're going to have to assess whether your property has been diligent in past years um, in terms of completing the inspections and ensuring that last year, for example, there was an inspection done and there were no issues with the inspection. If that is the case, then your property is probably a good candidate to uh, reasonably defer. So if it's a good candidate, it would be reasonable to defer the inspections on that property. Um, and then the second point is that it, it would be important if you're going to defer the inspections to talk with your um, fire systems contractor or your engineer and just confirm that they don't see any obvious concerns um, about deferring the inspection for a couple of months. Um, the question too, I think also, I think it's also relevant to talk about what a deferral of these types of inspections will look like. And so um, our, our thoughts are that obviously you're going to need to send a letter to owners um, to explain the deferral to them um, and the reasons why. Um, and in that letter, if the units have um, the battery operated smoke detectors uh, that the corporation typically uh, is responsible. So sorry, let me back up. If the units have the battery operated smoke detectors and as part of the unit inspections, that's what gets inspected, then the letter should ask owners to uh, check the smoke detectors themselves. And obviously, uh, you have to spell it out for people that they will need to replace the battery if it needs to be replaced themselves. And um, also, I think the letter should ask owners to um, report any problems that they're aware of with smoke detectors or the fire system in general, uh, just to sort of put a bit of the responsibility back on owners and residents to um, inform the board if there are problems that they may be aware of. And then the board can assess whether those problems need to be investigated um, now or whether it can wait and, and how to best go about that. And so hopefully if uh, the board is only required to look into a few units or one specific issue rather than having to go around unit to unit, um, that would be less risky for everybody involved. Um, as well, we are 
um, oh, if, if the buildings, if the inspection, it, so if the annual inspection also relates to the um, more modern sort of interconnected fire systems that connect the units to um, a loudspeaker and like a control panel at the front of the building or whatever. Um, in, in that respect, in the interim, while you're deferring the unit inspections, obviously just keep going with the regular monthly um, maintenance for testing of, of that system and following any recommendations that your contractor or your engineer is gonna have for this interim period while you're deferring um, the unit to unit inspections. Um, hopefully it's not, I know, I know that a lot of buildings are doing these inspections in the spring. That said, I'm hoping it's not a lot of properties that have to defer. Um, if, if it's difficult for you to make the assessment about whether it's gonna be reasonable to defer or not, that's a circumstance where you could reach out to legal counsel. Um, it's a phone call or your engineer and, and ha have a professional help you make that assessment. Um, and that helps to sort of um, divert any liability from the board or the manager for those decisions onto the professionals that are making those decisions instead. So that's my answer on that. Um, oh, Christy just mentioned I had firsthand experience. Yes, there was a fire alarm in my building yesterday. So I was outside um, trying to not touch anything and um, stand six feet away from people in the rain yesterday. <laughs> So I guess, uh, Melinda, maybe on that point, yeah, maybe on that point, uh, obviously, you know, a, a fire is maybe less risky than um, staying in your unit, obviously, to socially isolate, but maybe we can also suggest that people can reach out to their fire safety plan experts and see whether or not there's any amendments to their plan that they need to consider. Probably not, uh, but uh, Melinda's firsthand experience, I think uh, you probably want to get out of the building rather than self-isolate. Yeah. 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 Well, to be honest, that was debatable. <laughs> um, okay, and then otherwise, um, that we get a lot of questions right now about um, general repair and maintenance obligations. You've probably seen our blog post about um, what should be going forward in terms of work on the buildings and the properties. Um, generally, it's going to boil down to an assessment of what is urgent right now. Urgent repair and maintenance uh, can continue. Uh, but otherwise, our recommendation, which is in line with uh, the provincial government's comments on essential services, is that um, all non-essential work needs to be deferred or shut down as much as possible. And I know that there's obviously a lot of implications with that, and, and people are concerned that you know contractors may not be in business in a month or two months from now um, when it comes time to resume that work. And obviously that's a, a big concern and something to consider as well. But ultimately our recommendations are based on the fact that condos with people living in such close proximity to each other are at a greater risk in our view of having a, an outbreak of the virus. And so um, we need to be turning our minds to all possible solutions to prevent an outbreak in our buildings. Um, and then sort of assessing what kind of repair and maintenance work uh, can be done at a later date once, um, once the state of emergency has been called off. So that's just a, a general comment. Um, it's also set out in our blog. Um, so hopefully that answers everyone's question on that. 
Great. Thanks, Lynn. And I guess we could, uh, like Jim and you were both saying, turn to your experts, turn to those, the, the engineers who are supervising the project, turn to the contractors, the engineers together to see um, to what extent you can work together and try and manage all of these risks. Great. Well, we have, uh, I think we're doing okay. We have five minutes technically left. If we go over with some questions, uh, I think everybody in our group is uh, willing to stay for some extra questions and those who can stick around, great. Our last question, we turn it over to Mo. And the question is, uh, I'm anxious about guests coming into the building. And, and this, I guess, leads also to uh, the real estate showings that we're, we are hearing about. How do we know what kind of situation the guests are in? My friend is in a condo building with a concierge and in that particular building, they're not allowing guess so what do we think about that mo over well, to you thank you nancy um <clears throat> i guess our first position just to sort of uh put, put in a prelude here is to say that the objective ultimately of course with covid19 going on is to limit public gatherings as much as possible what we're trying to do is to ensure that everyone stays safe and stays inside their units um so our first advice would be to to recommend the condominium boards and condominium corporations that to add this specific element to any pro any protocols they may conceive with regards to um, uh, to COVID-19 or to social distancing to, to specify that the objective here is to limit public gatherings as much as possible. Now, with regard to specifically banning or prohibiting visitors outright, we don't believe at this very time we wouldn't say that condominium corporations are in a position to do that. However, what we believe that board, uh, what boards and condominiums can do is to send a notice to residents effectively saying that our, that given the current circumstances, which are exceptional, um, the board's expectations at this point is to have, uh, is that there would be no guests um, at the moment. So once again, just to reiterate uh, what has been said throughout, uh, throughout the, the session today is that the objective here is really to inform and to educate and to seek cooperation from all the residents um, in order to ensure that we try to limit as much as possible people coming from outside. If um, in the event that there are uh, that residents from uh, sorry, sorry visitors and guests from outside are required to come in, uh, there are certain guidelines. So what we can say is uh, one person at a time. We don't want any any large gatherings or any gatherings on the common elements. Um, only ingress and egress. So only the right to enter and the right to leave. Um, those who are coming in from outside must must practice social distancing protocols. Um, and again, just to reiterate that we want to prevent as much as possible any sort of large gatherings on the, the common elements. Um, in addition to that, what I would add is we, we need to try as much as possible to encourage owners and to encourage residents to use other means of communication. So electronic communication, Skype, um, or telephone communication as much as possible in order to avoid um, and in order to maintain the, the social distancing protocols. Um, the last point perhaps to, to emphasize on here is, as we've said already, uh, the situation is extremely, extremely volatile. It's evolving constantly. So as of now, what we know it, with regards to public gatherings here in Ontario is 50 people or more is, uh, any gatherings of 50 people or more is considered to be uh, prohibited. Other provinces have taken other initiatives. Obviously, we know that in Quebec, um, the measures are much more strict. Um, I mean, they're, they're gone to a point where they're considering any gathering of two people or more to be, uh, to be prohibited. So with regard to that, perhaps within the coming week, I guess, as Nancy had said, and as other people have, have mentioned, the situation could change and is changing rapidly. Um, but as of now, just to reiterate, we don't believe that condominiums can outright ban or prohibit people from coming from outside. But the objective, again, is to try as much as possible to limit people 
uh, coming from outside to limit visitors and to seek out the cooperation of the owners um, in order to achieve those objectives, um, to practice social distancing, as well as to promote other means of communication um, in order to make sure that everyone stays in touch, but still stay, stay, stay safe at the same time. Great, thank you, Mo. And I guess uh, you know, for the for the building that is saying no guests, uh, we're we're not saying that 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 they they have to take their sign down if they're saying no guests. It's just if it's challenged, really. Like I mean, obviously, exercise your common sense to the extent that your entire building is willing to agree to no guests. Great, right? That that's a fantastic situation. But in the event that you're challenged, we don't yet have the legal authority uh, to ban guests. As Mo was saying, uh, over here in Quebec, we're limited to no more than two people gathering together and we're stuck in our domiciles, which fortunately for me means I've got a country area, so I've got some room to move, and maybe that's what's coming in Ontario. Um, so I guess, does anybody have any, uh, thank you, Kayla, does anybody have any questions that they want to ask any of our panelists? You can type away here. Or I think there's a way to raise your hand as well to say that uh, you have a question. Melinda, do you have a comment? Well, I think Allison. I think Allison had. Um, there was a comment uh, that I or a question I didn't answer um, during my topic. So the question is, what should the protocol be for residents? Should there be a fire emergency evacuation required? Should we just deal with that one now? Sure. We we talked about it briefly, but go ahead, Melinda. So I'll, I'll put my comments out there and then if anybody else on the panel disagrees or wants to add, please jump in. My initial gut reaction is that what happens, particularly in high rise buildings, is that people hear the fire alarm and just don't leave. Um, and that there may be a greater risk of that right now. So I just worry that if we start complicating things with additional comments about what to do in terms of social distancing during a fire evacuation that people are going to be overwhelmed, disregard it, or it may exasperate the problem that people don't leave the building um, when an alarm is going off. So I guess my gut is to say that we just need people to follow the normal protocols in a, a fire alarm or emergency evacuation. Um, and then maybe the if there's a board member or a staff member or a manager on site, um, you know, if the emergency persists and people have to congregate or be outside, then somebody with some authority can start directing people to stand apart and, and not be congregating in groups and that kind of thing. I just, obviously I observed yesterday about four people in a 200 unit building left the building. So all these fire firemen are coming into the building. Thankfully, it wasn't a real fire, but had they had to have responded, there would, there would be so many people in the building that they would have had to come and try and rescue. So that's where my comments are coming from. Great. Does anybody else have anything? People out of the building. <laughs> anybody else have anything they want to offer? Hey, great. Thanks, Melinda. Um, the next question is, would real estate agents be considered an essential service? Does anybody want to jump in and tackle that one? Uh, Christy? Yeah, okay, Ali, you want to unmute Christy? Oh, great. <laughs> okay, here I am. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, real estate agents are on the list of essential services. Um, and in fact, I was looking at it actually because I saw this question came up earlier. So I think it's, um, uh, yeah, so I wanted to, 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 I took a look at what what the government has put out in terms of essential services. And 
uh, lumped together are land registration services, real estate agent services, and moving services. And I think taken together, what we can take from that is that um, buying and selling property and then moving to and from is considered by the government to be permitted right now. It's, it's considered to be essential and um, they obviously don't want to stand in the way of that kind of transaction from uh, occurring. I think that that um, sort of goes hand in hand with the moving in and moving out. Um, <laughs> my daughter is here. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we're all just making do. Um, Anyway, I think that that goes hand in hand with the, the moving in and move, moving out. So I don't know that condominium corporations can necessarily stand in the way of people moving in and out of the building. I think that probably um, what the boards could do is impose additional requirements in terms of um, clean, cleaning and sanitizing uh, the common elements that are used for the purposes of moving in and moving out. Um, uh, you know, in turn, I, I think about the situation, I'm thinking like, how are these people gonna maintain social distancing? Like there's obviously gotta be movers and so on. I, I'm not sure how they're complying with those guidelines. Um, perhaps they're wearing masks, I don't know. Ultimately though, I think that the answer is that the corporation itself can't stop that from occurring. Um, and the corporation's goal is to ensure the safety and security of the common elements and the property and the residents. So um, insofar as the activity interferes in any of that, then the corporation can take steps. And as I say, one thing that comes to mind is perhaps sanitizing like the elevators um, and the moving lobby and uh, any other common element areas that are affected by the move. Yeah, so that's great, Chrissy. So you dealt with both the real estate agents and the move-ins, move-outs. Yeah, they sort of go hand in hand, yeah. I think. Yeah, fantastic, thank you. Um, so then uh, Shelly said, uh, are open houses still occurring? Shockingly, they are. Um, uh, mostly I'm hearing about them from in smaller sectors. Like I heard about uh, some that are still going on in um, Rockland and out in that area. Um, hopefully not as much in Ottawa because virtual touring really is out there. They can, they can do that right now. So My neighbor in uh, Barhaven had uh, two open houses last weekend on either side of me. Yeah. Right. Like it, so, like like Jim said at the very beginning, not everybody is taking this um, as seriously as they should be. Um, so the, I think the last question we have is um, from Kathy: uh, Is perimeter fencing uh, considered essential work? Uh, Jim, did you want to tackle perimeter fencing? What do you What are your thoughts on that, Ali? If you want to unmute Jim. And then after Jim tackles that, if he has any other questions. Go ahead, Ali. Yeah, I mean, my thought on it is that uh, once again, it's gonna depend on the, the particular circumstances. I think sometimes a perimeter fence and the need to reestablish that fence can indeed be a, an urgent uh, um, repair, uh, urgently needed, for instance, to uh, avoid trespassing um, and, and for that matter, to avoid the interactions that come from trespassing. So I think that there really could be situations for sure in which um, work on a perimeter fence would be considered urgent, appropriate for it to continue. And not only that, I think that usually that work could probably be done, seems to me, fairly safely uh, at a distance from residents. And so I think that's also a factor to be taken into account in terms of whether or not the work is going to proceed. Uh, but the sense I'm having, subject to specific circumstances, is that it's probably the kind of work that it makes sense. It's even, I would think, it might even qualify as just regular maintenance, the kind of work that maybe should continue um, in order that the boundaries of the property are in proper condition. Now, 
I think there could be some situations in which, you know, the fence has been down for years, it's not urgent, it's not a big issue, and maybe it could be ignored for what I hope will be only a few more months before this crisis uh, is passing behind us. Uh, so again, um, you know, my message, I think that was Kathy, eh? Was that Kathy's question? My message, yeah, yeah my method's message would be, depends on the circumstances, but I think it may well be urgent and you could go ahead and get it done. Great, thanks, Jim. Uh, so we've kept everybody uh, seven, eight minutes over now, and we know that it's, it's happy hour, right? It's uh, three o'clock, well, I guess happy hour in some places. Other, a lot, of, a lot of people still have lots of work to get done before they can call it happy hour. Um, so basically, I'm hoping that uh, if anybody has a last comment, just raise your hand. Let me know if there's any final words you want to give. Anybody? No? Okay, well then I guess on behalf of DHA, I will just say thank you so much to everybody for uh, joining us here today. If you have more questions, feel free to send them in. We will do our best to try and answer them in a blog. And if we uh, have the ability, maybe we'll do another one next week or the week after and see everybody in person again. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.